welcome out. Welcome to those who are joining us online, however you're connecting with us. We just pray every week our hope is that you would connect with God in a meaningful way and that he would be able to guide your next step as you walk through life with him. And I pray this morning that you've already met him through worship and now as we dive into his word, it's an opportunity for us to again hear from him and allow him to, to guide our steps through this life. And I know in a room this size, people are coming from all different um, directions. Some had a great week, some had a really hard week. So I want to just open up in prayer and let God be able to speak to us individually as we open up his word. Father, we are thankful. Thankful for a time to gather um, as your people. Thankful for a time where we can see you, connect with you, worship you. And God, now as we enter into your word, I, I just pray that you would meet with us individually. Spirit, that you would do your work, that you would take the, the truth of scripture and plant it into our lives. Meet us exactly where we are. Allow us to know where you want us to go next. God, we thank you for your living and active word. And we pray that you would guide our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 16. We will get there in just a few minutes. Uh, we are in this year-long journey through the Bible, and we, we are taking a pretty big leap uh, in the timeline of God's redemptive story in this uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, last week, Blair was talking about the rise of this man named Joshua, who, who takes over as the leader of the nation of Israel after the death of Moses. And it's through Joshua's leadership that uh, the Israelites are finally able to occupy the, this promised land. It was almost 700 years after God made this covenant promise to Abraham that they're finally able to, to, to take hold of this promised land. Well, after Joshua dies... The nation ends up in this void of leadership, uh, and for the next 300 years, they go through this awful cycle. The, the nation rebels against God, and God oppresses them through sending in a, a conquering nation. And they, they come to their senses, and they cry out to God, and they repent, and God would send them a judge, a, a hero, to save them, only for them to fall right back into rebellion once again. And it was just this terrible season of the, the nation of Israel, this downward cycle that just kept overtaking them. We, last summer, we studied the book of Judges, so if you want to catch up on that part of God's redemptive story, you can go back online and capture that, that, that whole series from last summer. Well, up to this point in their history, the, the nation had um, prophets and priests that guided them, but God was their king. But eventually, they go to the prophet Samuel, and they tell him that they want a human king that they want to be like the other nations around them, that they want a king that they can see and feel and touch and talk to and, and to lead them into battle. And so Saul becomes their first king, and he looked apart. He, the scripture de describes him as being head and shoulders above everyone else. And for a season, he led really well. He was humble, and he listened to, to, to Samuel and to God, but eventually the, the power of the position began to, to corrupt his heart. He became um, arrogant, he became selfish, he became pride-filled, and he disobeyed God on multiple occasions. And so now God is ready to move on from Saul as his chosen king. And that's where we are in 1 Samuel 16. So when Samuel hears this, he's kind of freaking out a little bit. Um, he's like, uh, uh, God, how does this work? We're surrounded by the Philistines, we're surrounded by the enemies. How are we ever going to, to defend ourselves without a king? And what Samuel failed to realize, and what, what we often fail to realize when we find ourselves in these stressful times, is that God is working behind the scenes. 
that, that nothing catches him off guard, that, that he already has a plan in place and knows exactly what he's going to do. So we pick up in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Saul's pride was his downfall. And because of his pride, he's dealing with the consequences. God is moving on from him. And God tells Samuel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the small town of Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, because I have chosen one of his sons to be the next king. And this is Samuel's response. But Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Samuel hesitates. He, he panics, and, and rightfully so. Saul was not a guy to be messed with. I wonder if you've ever done that. Like, that you get a clear direction from God. You hear very clearly, God says, go, and you say, okay, but before you even finish the prayer, you're going, okay, now wait a second. How can I do that? How can I share my faith with that person? How can I really forgive that person for what they did? You want me to switch jobs? We, We can't afford for me to take that job. And we go into this place of overanalyzing the situation and fear and panic and, and worst-case scenario thinking just kind of grips our minds. Well, that's where, where Samuel is, and he's asking all these questions, but God doesn't even entertain those questions. He doesn't even answer any of those questions. He just moves on. He says, the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Obedience matters. The, the reason that Saul's life went off the rails is because he refused to obey God. He thought he knew better than God, and he made all these kinds of compromises. But Samuel ends up pushing through his doubts. He pushes through his fear, and he obeyed and then left the results to God. And that's the definition of faith. That's what God desires out of our lives, that we get to a place where we can trust and obey as he directs us into how we can be a part of his mission to bless the world around us. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and he finds Jesse, and he tells Jesse, hey, the Lord has told me that he's going to choose one of your sons as the next king. And Jesse immediately thinks, well, I know who you're looking for. It's my oldest son, Iliad. He, and he checks all the boxes. He's like the, the all-American athlete, the valedictor- valedictorian, the, the one that was voted most like, likely to succeed. And this is what happens in verse 6. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He, he agreed with what Jesse thought. This must be the one. He, he looks the part. And this sounds eerily similar to what he thought about Saul. This is like Saul all over again. It, Samuel's just looking at the outward appearance. He's looking at the resume. He's looking at the physical stature. And he's choosing Eliab because he looks kingly. But God steps in and corrects him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. But the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And so he, he starts correcting Samuel. God says, I, I'm looking for something different in my next king. Um, I'm, looking, I'm not looking at the external. I, I'm, I'm looking on the inside at the heart. And this is the principle that God uses to choose the people that he's going to use. When God looks for people to use, he's not looking 
at charisma. He's not looking at charm. He's looking at character. He's looking at the heart. And so Samuel says to Jesse, sorry, he's not the one. God has not chosen him. Do you have any other sons? So Jesse begins to march his sons in front of Samuel one by one, and each one is rejected by God. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. At this point, it's getting a little bit awkward. Everybody's looking around going, well, we thought that God was going to choose one of us, and Samuel's probably getting a little confused as well because God had given him very clear instructions. You go to this town, you go to this house, and it's going to be one of his sons, and yet there aren't any of these that have been chosen. And so now he's forced to ask a really odd question. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse starts counting his fingers and says, you know what? There is one more, uh, the youngest. There's still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending to the sheep. Jesse goes, yeah, I, I forgot about him, but he's not going to do you any good. He's just a little shepherd boy. And this word youngest has a, a mixture of not only being young in age, but also insignificant. So Jesse's kind of saying, David's just the runt of the family. And then he adds that, that he's out tending to the sheep. And shepherding at that time, that was the lowliest position. I mean, the, the, the lowest of the, of the servants would do that. The point is that, that David was the last person that anyone expected to be the next king including his own dad. It picks up in verse 11. It says, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for David and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. I think at this point, Samuel's a little upset. He's like, dude, you had one job. I said, bring all of your sons here and you forgot one. So I tell you what, we're not sitting down until David gets over here. So they stand up and David walks in the room. And the only description that we have of him is that he was ruddy and that he was a fine appearance. That, that word ruddy means either he was a redhead or, or most likely that he was suntanned, bronze in features because he spent all of this time out in the open field. And it says that he has a fine appearance and handsome features. The point is that when you would look at David, you would say, cute kid, nice heart, but you're not the king. You're not a, the kind of warrior king that we're looking for. Verse 12, it says, And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up, and he went to Ramah. So here's David, this young teenager, and he rushes into the house. He walks in, he's still smelling like sheep, and all of a sudden this old man, Samuel, this prophet, hobbles over to him, pours oil down his head and tells him that he's going to be the next king of Israel. And then Samuel leaves. And the next verse goes back to King Saul. Now, what would you do if you heard this news? This is like the news of a lifetime. You're going to be the next king. You just hit the lottery. I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd head down to the store, a department store, and get fitted for a nice robe and get the, get the crown just right. I'd have business cards that read, King-elect, and I'd make it sure everybody knew who I was. But that's not what David does. The next time we see David is in verse 19. Uh, Saul gets in this fit of rage, and he asks for someone to, to send a musician to him. And David, who's so good on a harp, somebody goes and sees him and says, Therefore Saul sent messengers 
to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Don't miss those last three words there. He went back to the sheep, to being a shepherd after he was anointed as the next king. In fact, it would be another 15 years before David becomes the next king of Israel. So what can we learn from this story? If you're taking notes, the first thing I think that we can learn from this is that God uses the ordinary. When we choose our role models, when we choose our heroes that we want to emulate, we often are swayed or we're impressed by outward appearance, by their stature, by their success. We choose the beautiful people. We choose the smartest people. We, we choose the, the rich and famous. Oftentimes, the, the superficial impresses us more than we would like to admit. But the Bible shows us that that is not how God operates. Th- throughout Scripture, what we find is that God consistently chooses the overlooked, that, that he chooses the forgotten, that he chooses the ordinary. He promises the Messiah will come from, from plain Leah and not Rachel. He chooses stammering Moses instead of the, the, the silver-tongued Aaron. He chooses the runt David over everybody else. And what we find in here is that, that Jesse had put limits on his youngest son, that Jesse was the one who had put these boundaries, these limitations on David, and he thought that God could never use him. He, he's too young, he's too small, he doesn't have the experience to step into that role. Well, maybe you're here this morning and, and you feel the limitations of labels in your own life. Maybe from other people have given you a label, or maybe you have put it on yourself, and you have determined that God can never use me, that God can never use me because I'm too young. God can never use me now because I'm too old. God can never use me because I don't have any special talent or skill set. God can never use me because of my past, because of that divorce, because of that past addiction, because of that past behavior, and you have put limitations on what God can do in your life. But this passage shows us that God says, that's not the way that I make choices. I I take nobodies and I turn them into somebodies. I I love how Paul captures what this looks like as he's talking to these new believers in, in Corinth. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. When you read through um, God's redemptive story, what you'll find is that God over and over again uses the most unlikely, uh, the ordinary, the, the broken, so that he can make much of himself, so that all the glory comes back to him. You look at the roster of people that God uses, um, Jacob was a thief and a liar. Joseph was a convict. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a coward. Jonah was a racist. Peter was a hypocrite. James and John were power hungry. Thomas was a doubter. God can use anybody. And the point is that God has a purpose and a plan for everyone, which means two things. One is that God's not done with you yet. That he has a plan and a purpose for your one and only life. And two, it also means that we need to see others through that same lens. That, that to see beyond their past, to see beyond their track record, to see beyond their limitations and see the value and the worth in them that God sees in them. Which leads to the second lesson that we learn from this is that God's primary concern is your heart. That 
the key verse in this whole passage tells us that God is not concerned with success and stature and all these external measurables. He's concerned about the condition of the heart, the, the character of our lives. The, the truth is, is that God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay there, that, that he wants to build into your life. He wants to shape your character, to, to, to shape your heart. He wants to bring out certain qualities in you, that the same kinds of qualities that he saw in David. David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. So what does that mean? What, what does it mean for us to strive to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? One is that it's a person who lives in harmony with God. That they want their lives to, to live in harmony, to live in alignment with God, which means what's important to him is important to you. What, what burdens him burdens you. What breaks his heart breaks your heart. And that there's a desire to walk in step with him. And that when he says go, you pick up and you go. And when he says you need to stop that, that you take that to heart and you find the ways to change that aspect of your life and you address it. That there's this harmony of wanting to live with God day by day, moment by moment. And secondly, a person after God's own heart has humility. Even though David was this young teenager, he continued to faithfully keep his father's flock. God saw in David that this servant's heart, this contentment to live outside of the limelight, not needing all the um, praise from other people. And he just simply served, served his dad, served the people around him. Paul reminds us in Philippians that we're to have that same kind of attitude of serving in Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That, that we have this humility to be able to serve the people around us, to bless them. And then lastly, a person after God's own heart has honesty. They have, they have integrity. That you're, you're the same person even when no one is looking. That, that there's this desire to have every aspect of your life open before God so that he can change what he needs to change. In Second Chronicles, it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That God is looking for men and women who are fully committed to him. That doesn't mean that, that we're perfect, but what it means is that God has access to everything. That there aren't any... Uh, locked closets that he doesn't have access to, that, that we're not sweeping under the rug or, or, or making excuses or making justifications for some aspects of our life that aren't aligned with him, that we pray the prayer of David in 139, Psalm 139, he says, search me and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting, that, that we go before God and say, God, there are times that I can convince myself that convince myself that, that things are better than they are. So God, would, would you shine a spotlight on every aspect of my life? I don't want there to be anything hidden from you. And, and then would you give me the strength? Would you lead me to make the kinds of changes that I need to make? Because I want every aspect of my life to please you. God says that the most important thing about the person, or about a person, is their heart. Their character. So one application of this is when you are evaluating other people. Maybe it's a, a potential boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's a potential spouse or a potential employee. 
prioritize their inner character above whatever their outward appearance looks like. And then the flip side of that question is, how much time do you spend building your own character? How much time do you spend on focusing in on your heart? If we want a deeper relationship with a God who says that he prioritizes the heart, then it would make sense that we would devote some time, as much, at least as much time as we do on the outward appearance, to focus in on our hearts, to put some time and effort to work on the one thing that God says that he's looking at. So how do we do that? How do we shape our heart, shape our character? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to give you two ways. The, the third thing is that God empowers the change that he desires. We're told that after David was anointed, that, that the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. David was just an ordinary guy. He was just an ordinary shepherd boy. But what gave him an extraordinary life was the Spirit of God in him that empowered him to do these extraordinary things. And the same is true in our lives. When we place our faith in Christ, what we're, said, what we're told is that, that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes within us to help us in this journey. And one of the roles of, of the Holy Spirit is to produce change in our lives. That, that is that as we walk closely with Jesus, as we put ourselves in the kinds of places where our heart is stirred and our affections are turned towards him, that God the Holy Spirit in you begins to produce fruit in your life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. That, that, that the closer that you get to Jesus, the more Jesus comes out of you. And the Spirit produces kindness where it used to be absent. And, and the Spirit produces self-control where you didn't used to have any. And the Spirit gives you gentleness in how you talk to your spouse or to a co-worker when that didn't used to be the case in your life. So he, he gives us these, these, this ability to change our heart and to allow his fruit to come out of our lives. He changes our character, changes our heart and our attitude. And then another role of the Spirit is that he's given to us as a comforter. That uh, Scripture tells us that he gives us a, a peace that surpasses understanding. That, that he can guard our hearts and our minds when, when life seems like it's going out of control. And what that means is um, some of you are here and you're, you're newer believers and, and now you, you're walking into situations that used to freak you out. But now what freaks you out is that even though you're in this really stressful situation, that there is this calm. There's this, this, this peace that just doesn't make any sense. And that you're able to trust in God even when life is spinning out of control. What you'll find if you do a study of the New Testament is that the role of the Holy Spirit is that he works on the thing in your life that God the Father pays the most attention to. Your heart. And if you will cooperate with him, if, you will, if you'll keep in step with him, then he will continue to shape your heart. He'll continue to shape your character so that you look more and more like Jesus. The other way that God shapes our character and our heart is that he uses pastures for preparation. The, the, the end of the, the passage ends with, with Samuel, this great prophet of Israel. His hand is on David's head, and, and this anointing oil is running down his head and onto his neck, and the Spirit of God is rushing on him. And then, silence. Just a blank space. 
right after the biggest day in David's life, nothing changed. He just goes back to the pasture. Now, eventually, if you follow the the story of David, he eventually becomes a a great military leader in Saul's army. But but even when things start happening and moving a little bit, um, Saul gets jealous. And and he starts hunting down and trying to kill David. David waits 15 years. 15 years between the anointing, the promise, and his coronation as king. Put yourself in David's shoes. I mean, if I were in his shoes... I'd be thinking, wait a second, I, I was anointed as king. I, I didn't misunderstand what he said. I, I felt the power of the Spirit of God in my life. I, I know what God has called me to do. So where did God go? Is this some kind of mistake? This isn't a mistake. That God uses the pasture, that time in the pasture, to prepare him to be his next king. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in a similar situation where you have felt that God has clearly called you to something, but the doors haven't opened up yet, and you find yourself in this season of waiting, and you're wondering, God, what are you doing? And what you find throughout (coughs) Scripture is that while we're waiting, God is working. While we're waiting, God is working, and oftentimes what he's doing is he's working on us. He's working on our character and our integrity to prepare us for what's next. Because it's in these seasons of waiting, it's in these these pasture-type seasons that God builds into into us the the skill that we need, the the character that we need, to be able to accomplish what it is that he is preparing for us to do. Um, Pastor Chuck Swindoll says that God uses... um, four qualities of the pasture to shape a heart. The the first one is solitude. That when we look at at David, it was just David and the sheep in the field. There was no one else there. No one was watching. And the fact is that he needed to learn some lessons in private before he could be trusted to do something in public. And oftentimes it's in solitude that, that our character and our integrity is put to the test. Well, again, our character should be, it should be the, we should be the same person when no one is watching as if they are. And when we're in these times of solitude, it's a great test of our character and our integrity and finding out if there are some areas that we need to improve on. The second thing that he uses is obscurity. No one paid any attention to David. No one cared about what he did. He was just a shepherd boy. He was just living his life in complete obscurity. But the people that God uses to do great things for him often begin that journey being unnoticed and unappreciated. It's in obscurity that that our humility and our our servanthood is growing and is being tested. The third thing is monotony. David's time in the pasture was the same thing, day after day after day. But he learned to be faithful in the menial. He learned to be faithful in the, the insignificant, the, the repetitive, the, the unexciting everyday tasks of life. I think that describes one of God's favorite methods to train our lives, that, that in the everyday moments of life, can we see glimpses of how it is that he is using these conversations, these everyday conversations, these everyday moments, these everyday things that pop up in our lives. Can we see how he is using the everyday to shape us? And then lastly, is reality. So 
it's, it's in the pasture that, that David develops these really tangible skills that come in really handy later on in his life. He became deadly with a slingshot. And it was pretty helpful when he showed up on the battlefield and goes up against Goliath. He learned to play the harp, which allowed him to write songs, these psalms that we still sing today, like Psalm 23. You see, God uses the reality of life to, to build into our lives these skills, these, these talents that he wants to use later on in our lives to bless the people around us so we can accomplish his plans for our lives. God used the, this waiting time, this time in the pasture to, to shape David to become the shepherd of God's people. He remained a shepherd his entire life. The only thing that changed was his flock. But God used this time to be able to, to build into him the attributes, the qualities, the character that he needed to be able to lead people well. But, but it's hard sometimes to, to see God's hand at work in these seasons of our lives. And sometimes in these seasons of monotony, in these long periods of waiting, it, it just feels like we're stuck. And sometimes we're tempted to just throw up our hands and quit. I want you to hear this. Young parents, you're not just changing diapers. You're not just doing loads and loads of laundry. No, God is building character in you. As you serve your family, he is preparing within you a heart for eternal service. You're not just working a dead-end job. No, God is building character in you, and you have no idea who the next client or the next co-worker is that God may bring into your life that you can have an impact in. These students, you're not just learning history and calculus and all these different topics. God is working in you and is developing your character. He's giving you proving ground of, of perseverance and, and patience and honesty. So here's what I'd say. Don't despise and don't waste these seasons in the pasture. These are seasons of preparation. They, these are God's laboratory time. And he's wanting to form and to shape your character and your heart. So, so be faithful. Be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in the little things in the lonely places because what you're doing as you are doing that is you are proving yourself capable of the bigger things that God wants to do in your life. And then be intentional. God shaped David's character and his integrity and his heart through these intentional times and these long times of, of silence and solitude and, and reflection. And I think that in our day and age, that, that's a hard thing to come by, that it's so easy at the end of the day to just turn the TV on and, or just flip through and scroll through social media, a social media feed, and, and just let our minds just go blank. And I'm as guilty as anyone, but, but this is a reminder that we need to have these kinds of moments of reflection where, where we can look back in the everyday moments on this single day in the passion. What is it, God, that you wanted to teach me? What is it that you're trying to shape in me? But that just requires some time and some intentionality. David reminds us that God uses the ordinary to do extraordinary things for him. He wants to use you. He's not done with you. He has a plan and he has a purpose for your one and only life. Don't miss it. He wants to to use you to have an eternal impact in the lives of others. But we have a role to play. If we want to be used by God, 
if we want to allow him to use this life to, to make that kind of impact, then we have to cooperate with what he wants to do, how he wants to shape our heart. That means we have to cooperate with the Spirit, that, that we allow for times to be in front of his presence so that he shapes our heart, so that we look more and more like our Savior. And then we use the work of the pastor. We allow this time in the field, this time of waiting, to shape our hearts, to prepare our hearts for the ministry that God has for us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for thank you for the reminder that you use the ordinary, that, that these heroes of the faith that we often look to were just ordinary people. You did extraordinary things through them. You want to do the same thing in our lives. God, we have a role to play in this. There are things that, that hinder our ability to be used by you. You love us so much that you say, I'm not going to leave you where you are. I'm going to use this life to shape your character and your heart so that I can use you for it. God, give us the courage to stand before you, to allow for you to, to search our hearts, to examine our lives, so that you can lovingly guide our next steps. I thank you for this church and the ways that you use everyone that's gathered here to to glorify you. And God, I just pray that you would give us the courage to take that next step, to, to see the days ahead of us as opportunities to bless others and to point them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for coming out, everyone. Hope you guys have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Sunday.